Because on the cross, he showed you the only true and accurate measurement of his love for his people when he bled for you, when he died for you, when he became your sin for you. Everyone who brings their life into conformity of the Word will find themselves under pressure from the world because the two are opposed to one another. So on account of the Word, pressure is being received. But also the other word is persecution. That word persecution literally means to chase down or to pursue. That's why Paul will say to the Corinthians to pursue love. Literally, he says, persecute love. Because that's the literal meaning of persecute, to chase down or to pursue. So the writers of Scripture take that word to pursue or to chase down, and they give it a spiritual meaning, which is to say to chase down or to pursue with a view towards applying pressure, with a view towards uh, tribulation, with a view towards affliction. So tribulation is the pressure. Persecution is the chasing down to apply pressure. And those are the two things that Jesus says are represented by the sun. So there's a profession, there's the, the seed that receives, or the, the soil receives the word, springs to life, there's a profession, then the sun comes up. And the sun is the tribulation, is the persecution, is the pressure, is the chasing down to exert even more pressure. So this is how the sun brings both life and death. So how is that? How, how is this? tribulation? How is this pressure? How does it bring, first of all, death to the one plant, but how does it also bring life to the other plant? How does that work? Well, what we see here is that this rising sun, we're told, is this time of testing. In fact, in Luke's gospel, chapter 8, verse 13, We are told that the ones who landed on the rocky soil, they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they have no root. They believe for a while and then time of testing, they fall away. So as the profession is made, the word is received. I believe it. I repent. I believe. Sun comes up. Sun is the time of testing. I'm thinking of Jesus' time of testing. Remember chapter one, as Jesus goes into the wilderness for that scorching hot sun, for the pressure the pressure exerted upon him in those 40 days in the wilderness. So the, the profession is made, the confession is made, the repentance is made. I believe I will follow Jesus. Sun comes up and that sun begins to do its work, which is to kill the false profession and strengthen the true profession. The same sun does both. How does this work? How does, first of all, the sun the tribulation, the persecution, how does that kill the false profession? It works like this. The seed, the soil that receives the seed springs to life. I believe. I confess. I repent. I will follow Jesus. I will abandon this other way of life. I will follow Jesus. I believe upon this Jesus of the scriptures. I believe upon his promises. I believe that the scriptures teach me that that without holiness, I will not see the Lord. But I also believe the promises of the scriptures that tell me about my God. And they tell me that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, 
that those who are believing should not perish, but receive eternal life. I believe the promises of his word that tell me that he will never leave me and he will never forsake me. I believe the promises of his word that that tell me I go away to prepare a place for you, but, but fear not, for I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you will be also. And I believe his word that tells me, come unto me, all ye who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I believe those promises. And here comes the son. And the sun gets hot. And the pressure gets intense. In fact, the sun comes up because of the profession. And those pressures get real. And very quickly, the plant with no root begins to say, God, how could you leave me in this? My life is worse since I believed upon you. How could you let this conflict continue? God, almost as soon as I professed your name, I heard about this sickness in my body. God, almost before I got home from church, my life was falling apart. How could you let this continue? And the pressure begins to cause that plant to think harsh thoughts of the maker and low thoughts of God and mean thoughts of God. How could you leave me here? And the one under that pressure without the root will quickly begin to think of God not as a loving God of grace, but as a hard God, as a harsh God, a vindictive God, a God who chooses favorites and I'm not one. And that plant quickly dies. Naomi, my mouth is full of bitterness because God has been so bitter to me. Jesus tells a parable in Luke 19 that is a very instructive parable. I wish we had time to go through the parable in, in depth, but we won't. But you know the parable. It's the parable of the ten minas. And in that story, Jesus tells a story of a rich ruler, a rich master who goes away and is going to be gone a long time. And so he gathers three servants together. He gives each of them ten minas. And he says, put this to use while I'm gone. After a long time, the master comes back and two of the servants have put their ten minas to use. And they're praised and rewarded by the ruler. But then the third servant, instead of putting the minas to use, he buried it. And then the master calls him to account. And do you remember his words from Luke 19? Master, here's your ten minas. I kept them for you. Because I know you to be a hard man. I know you to be a severe man. I know you to be a man who collects where he has not deposited. I know you to be a man who reaps where he does not sow. So I kept your 10 minus for you. 
Jesus ends that parable by saying that that servant was cast into outer darkness. And the whole point was, he did not know the master. That was the whole point. Because the parable plainly shows that the master was not a hard man. He was not a severe man. He was not a man who reaped where he did not sow or collected where he did not deposit. And so the servant shows his ignorance of the master by saying, I know you to be a severe man, so here's your minus back. You wicked servant. You didn't know me at all. The sun beats down upon the rootless plant, revealing for the plant and everyone around, you never knew your God. You never knew Him. You sprang up so quick to life and everyone celebrated this quick springing up to life, but you never knew Him. Now, the same son brings not only death to the false professor, but life to the true professor. So again, think of Job. In all this, Job did not sin by accusing God of wrong. Think of Acts chapter 5 and verse 41, when Peter and John leave the Sanhedrin, and what are they doing as they leave after they've been beaten? They leave rejoicing because they were counted worthy to suffer for His name. The same son will take the rootless professor of faith and twist and beat down and dry up their false profession to show them there's no salvation there. Meanwhile, the same son will take others with the true profession and drive them deeper into the Lord. Every professor of faith, the son comes up. And for one person, that will cause them to become bitter and distrusting and maligning of God. God, how could you? How could you not? How could you withhold good things from me? How could you make me go through this? How could you not hear my prayer for deliverance? But for another believer, the same son will cause them to say, Oh God, how could I do this without you? How could I ever endure this without you? What a blessing to know you in the midst of this trial. What a blessing to feel you carry me through this. What a blessing to know you'll never leave me. What a blessing to know that all of this tribulation and persecution are making for me an eternity that's better. What a blessing. What a blessing to know that because the sun is shining on me like this is showing me that I'm yours. Because the tribulation beats down upon me and I don't see myself running from you. I see myself going further into you, retreating further into your name, into your grace and into your character. The same sun produces death and produces life. So why does this tribulation produce death? for the rootless plan. I think there's at least two reasons for that. First, the one that quickly sprang up to life with no root failed to understand that the blessings of the kingdom and this life are spiritual. And we say this all the time, but we can't say it enough. Just how easy it is to confuse the blessings of the kingdom 
between spiritual blessings and physical blessings. Every spiritual blessing in Christ is ours. But we have no promises of physical blessings. We have none. Yes, all good things come from God. And yes, God is often pleased to bless us physically with healings, with health, with strength, with employment, with friends, with family, with food on the table and a roof over our head. God is often pleased to bless us physically, but there are no promises of that. Instead, there is every promise for every spiritual blessing. The physical blessings start at the resurrection. Mark that on your calendar. When you're resurrected, that's when your physical blessings are promised. And they last for eternity. Your spiritual blessings are what have begun in this life. And when we confuse the two of those, we will be tempted to see the one who caused the sun to rise on our life to be hard. That's the first thing. The second thing is a failure to count the cost. The scriptures teach us this with regularity, don't they? Jesus tells us in Luke 14, this long extended passage about counting the cost. In that passage, we're told that a great crowd started to follow Jesus, but Jesus stopped and turned to them and He said to them, you better count the cost to follow Me. You better stop and assess the costs because following Me comes with a high cost. And He gives the examples of the king going to war and how he's got to assess the cost or the builder that's preparing to build and how he has to assess the cost. And He ends that whole section in verse 33 by saying, therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Any who does not renounce all that you have, any who would say to the Lord, there is something that's not yours. If you in your heart cannot say to your Lord, it is all yours. There is nothing of mine that I withhold from you. You have every right to every part of me. If any part of you would say, Lord, you do not have a right to tell me what to do in this or what not to do in this. If any part of you has that sentimentality, you cannot be his disciple. Those are not my words. Those are his. Now, that does not mean that in reality, you actually put everything of your life on the altar that you really do follow through perfectly. But that is to say, if you have a heart that intentionally says to your Lord, Lord, I can't love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength in that area. Or this thing over here, I'm not willing to give up for you. If that's your heart, Jesus, not me. Jesus says to you, you cannot be my disciple. Jesus never conned anyone into following him. In fact, Jesus went to great extremes to do the opposite. People would come to Jesus. Jesus, let me follow you. And Jesus would say, hang on a minute. Look over there. You see that fox running across the running across the prairie over there? See that fox? That fox has a hole somewhere. And he goes and he climbs in that hole at night. Neither me nor those who follow me even have that. Or another would come to Jesus. Jesus, I'm ready to follow you. Just let me go say goodbye to my parents first. No one who puts the hand of the plow and looks back is worthy of my kingdom. You see how Jesus rather than conning anyone, would say to them, you must forsake all. There must be nothing of your old life that you cling to. 
Rich young ruler comes to him. Lord, I've, I've obeyed in every way. Okay, give away everything you got. Can't do it, Lord. Not that. Everything but that. If you are not willing to renounce all that you have, you cannot be his disciple. Those are his words, not mine. And when we fail to count the cost, you will quickly begin to see God as a harsh, exacting, overly demanding God. And that will give rise to this son who brings death, not life unto you. The same son brings both life and death. Finally, think with me of just uh, the testimony of Paul. Think of Paul. Remember in 2 Corinthians 12, Paul goes through some of the, the things of his life, all the beatings, all the, the starvings, the shipwrecks, all the deprivations of Paul's life. And you remember how he says earlier in the, in the letter to the Corinthians there, he says, these slight momentary afflictions, they're just making my eternity better. They're slight. They don't last long. They're no big deal. Yeah, I was almost beaten to death about six times. Yeah, I, I nearly starved in prison. I can't remember how many times I've nearly starved in prison. I can't remember how many times I have been abused. I've been hungry. I've been cold. One time I was stoned and killed. But you know, none of that matters. Only my Lord matters. That's the, that is the good soil talking. That's a Christian talking. That is one who has a heart that has said to his Lord, it's all yours. It's all yours. So now just in conclusion, what can we do? Each of these soils, we want to ask ourselves, what can we do? First of all, here's the first thing. I think the first takeaway from this, we must endeavor to be very, very, very careful. Never to give assurance to rocky ground. And that is something that has happened with extreme regularity an extreme number of times within the context of the Western evangelical church is to give assurance to the rocky ground. I mean, why not? When there's one who comes among you and there's a reaction that's so enthusiastic and so joyful. In fact, the reaction of the rocky soil would put most of the good soil to shame. You ever feel like that? You, you ever been in a, in a church context and then someone comes who hasn't been in a church context for a long time and they are so moved to tears and so moved to joy by what they've heard, you're almost like, what's wrong with me? And then we're quick to give that assurance. All right, brother. Okay, sister. You are guaranteed eternal life forever. Can't lose it. And then we have that phrase that in which we try to articulate a doctrine of the church, but we do it poorly with words that are easy to misunderstand. And we all know the phrase. The phrase is once saved, what? Always saved. That's communicating a truth, but it's doing it so poorly that is so very easily misunderstood. Because how that's often understood is my profession when I was nine years old guarantees me heaven. The time I got wet when I was 11 in front of a whole bunch of people watching, guarantees me heaven. My faithful church attendance guarantees me heaven. Or we could go on and on and on. The point is, it is far more precise and far more helpful to say, not once, once saved, always saved. But if God has saved you, you will persevere in your belief. 
Only those who are believing will be saved. And if your soil is the good soil, you will believe. You will persevere in your belief. And your belief will save you. But such great harm is done with that vibrant, enthusiastic reaction and everyone's so excited. And there comes the assurance. Stacking up for that rocky soil person a false assurance of life they don't have. Be very careful not to give false assurance to rocky soil. Number two, count the cost and count them again. Count the cost and count them again. All of us have hearts that have some rocky soil in them. And so all of us have hearts that when the sun gets hot, we're prone to to think of God in hard ways. We're prone to think of Him as withholding something good or withholding some comfort from us. All of us have that propensity. The way we can fight that, remind ourselves, remind ourselves, remind ourselves. His kingdom comes completely free of charge. He did it all for me but it requires all of me. It comes with a great cost. Count the cost, count the cost, and count the cost again. Number three, remind yourself that the blessings of His kingdom are spiritual and not physical. Remind yourself regularly that the blessings of His kingdom are spiritual and not physical. The physical blessings will be beyond all description, but they begin at the resurrection. The spiritual blessings likewise are beyond all description. But if you allow yourself, if you allow your heart, and all of us have hearts that want to drift in that direction, if you allow your heart to begin to think that as his child, I should expect something of a physical blessing, maybe a deliverance from a really difficult sickness or a deliverance from a really difficult financial situation, or God wouldn't let this happen to me. If you allow yourself to think that, then you are opening yourself up for rocky ground and thinking of God as a harsh, mean God. Remind yourself that the blessing of his, of his kingdom are spiritual, not physical in this life. And then lastly, and perhaps most importantly, never, never, never allow your heart to malign God. Teach your heart how to truly measure His love. When the sun comes out and it's baking down upon your life, it is perfectly fine to ask God why. It is perfectly fine to tell God you don't understand. It is perfectly fine to ask God for mercy. It is perfectly fine to ask God to give you some shade. What's not okay is to malign Him in your heart. Never allow your heart to malign Him. How do we do that? How do we combat that in our hearts? By teaching your heart the only way to properly understand the measure of His love. The only way that we understand the measure of His love is by one thing, the cross. The cross is what shows you clearly and plainly the the length, the depth, the width, and the height of God's love for you. Nothing else. All of us have a strong tendency to let our circumstances begin to teach us of how God loves us. And you can never, never do that. Because when your circumstances are unfavorable, well, that's that. what that does is speaks lies to you about God. If the circumstances of your life are a measurement of His love for you, well, then you just reduced His love down infinitely lower than it really is. 
Even if you let the good circumstances of your life teach you of how much you, you can't even do that. When God is blessing you in this life, even then, don't let your circumstances tell you how much he loves you. Why? God could give you every dollar in existence. He could heal your body of every affliction. And that still won't compare to the cross. Because on the cross, he showed you the only true and accurate measurement of his love for his people. When he bled for you, when he died for you, when he became your sin for you, teach your heart and do it every day. When my circumstances want to tell me that God is not being good to me or that God is being good to me, instead, teach your heart. No, the cross, the cross is the only thing that tells me rightly of God's love for me.